0: Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So says Satan in John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, there's a worldview in that line, isn't there? There's a whole vision of life in that line. And it gets sort of at the fundamental problem of humanity, started way back in the garden and that is that at the end of the day we want to reign, we want to rule, we want to be king and even if that means in place of God that was what Adam and Eve did there in the garden and humanity outside of Christ has been doing the same ever since. We want to be first, we want to be great. Well we've been in a series here most of the summer on being re-educated in the values of the kingdom of God. We started in Matthew chapter 18 and we've been being recalibrated and reshaped, the world seeking to disciples, disciple us. And so Jesus wants to re-educate us here, and that's what it's been about. And this week we consider greatness, firstness. In some ways we consider it again, right? This is a big deal to Jesus. He just mentioned it. Really, probably on the same page. If you've got a Bible, look at Matthew 18. We're in Matthew 20, but look at Matthew chapter 18. If you're using one of our Bibles there in front of you, it's page 775. This theme of greatness in the kingdom is really important to Jesus because he basically says the same thing a couple chapters apart. Let me just remind you, it's been a little while. Let's look at chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're wanting greatness and calling to them a child. He put them in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to, that believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Really strong words. He's saying you want to be great, you need to become like a child. And I think what he's getting at is the idea of their social status. You need to drop your selfish ambition and become like a child. So there he's teaching it, but the disciples are having a hard time. Tough time comprehending Jesus in the Jesus way. They needed re-education just like we need re-education. In fact, probably they're on the same page of your Bible, right after Jesus just elevates children, look at their response to a child in chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. They're still confused about this Jesus. They're still confused on the kind of kingdom that he's bringing. So let's be reeducated once again in what it means to be great. main point is that true greatness, kingdom greatness, consists not in lording over others but coming under others in self-giving love. So let's consider two contrary visions, worldly greatness and kingdom greatness. First, worldly greatness. Look again at Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling down before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one, at your right, and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, you got to love proud mamas. <laughs> Probably at the urging of her sons, we see that they're right there with her. She asked that they be number one and number two beside Jesus. They want the glory. They want to be first. They want to rule right beside King Jesus. Remember what he had promised them there in chapter 19, verse 28? Not on the heels of this, Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is going to share his rule. And so Mama and these two sons are like, I want to be number one. I want to be number two. I want to be vice president. I want to be secretary of state. These brothers, these sons of Zebedee were filled with zeal. It's a little bit misinformed. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us these brothers were also called the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. Why? Well, we don't really know. We just have a few glimpses. One time in uh, Luke, the Samaritans rejected Jesus. Remember this story? So they reject Jesus, and these sons of Zebedee, these sons of thunder, are like, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? (laughs) I mean, who asked that? (laughs) Well, the sons of thunder do. That's who. And their mama's rowdy too. She's bold, presumptuous even. She tells Jesus what to do. Say to my sons. And you just got to wonder, are they not listening? I mean, look at what we've seen. Look at chapter 19, verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Look at chapter 20, verse 16. In case we didn't get it. Sandwiches is teaching here. So the last will be first and the first last. And then what? right before our verses, what did Jesus just say in chapter 20, verse 18? See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he'll be raised on the third day. Right after this, prediction of crucifixion and suffering, mama asks for worldly glory. They they just don't get it. They only hear what they want to hear, in one ear, out the other. Even though he just speaks of suffering, they can only dream of glory. Jesus just spoke of his coming crucifixion, and they're like, hey, what's in it for me? That's all good, but how can I get some worldly glory? Selfish ambition has skewed their vision. It's like they're going around with the wrong prescription of glasses they can't see things clearly It'd be like you know you come up to someone and you tell them about you just lost a loved one and they're like yeah well bummer hey can you take my clothes to the cleaner you come up to someone and tell them I just was diagnosed with cancer Ah, oh, man sorry Do you mind washing my car for me they just don't understand what's going on they're not listening with friends like these who needs enemies As Luther said, the flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified. They want a crown without the cross. Remember, Peter learned this lesson, or at least he should have learned this lesson. Go flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 16. He wanted a kingdom without a cross. Jesus responds with clarity and sharpness. Look at chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, Peter heard that time, but what does he say in verse 22? He took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter didn't realize the path to the kingdom involved the cross. So Peter and the disciples and this proud, rowdy, Mama, they don't realize the nature of the kingdom of Christ. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's not what they expected. It's not like they think. They think King Jesus is going to go in and march to Jerusalem. That's where they're headed and just annihilate the Romans, call down the angels to destroy Rome and install the disciples right then and there to judge unfaithful Israel. But Jesus has taught again and again his kingdom's different. It's not like that. In fact, flip a couple pages back to chapter 13 as he teaches us this section on the parables about the kingdom. He's describing the nature of it. It doesn't come in all at once, and it's not characterized by violence and militarism. Look at chapter 13, verse 19. Notice what he says about it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and then he gives the parable this kingdom spreads by the word, not by the sword, but by the word. Look at chapter 13, verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Starts almost unnoticeable, but over time you can't but notice it. Then in verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Kingdom doesn't come in and take over. It comes in and slowly takes over. But take over it does. We started with 12. Now we're at some 2 billion. It's progressive, he says. Luke 17, he puts it this way, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God's not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or therefore, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so they're just confused. The kingdom doesn't come by force. It doesn't come by coercion, but conversion. Jesus doesn't come in and kill his enemies. He's killed by his enemies. The kingdom comes through the cross. Jesus will be enthroned, but not before he's crucified. Before he wears a crown of glory, he wears a crown of thorns. But the disciples are right that glory is coming. Even earthly glory, right? He just said that in chapter 19, verse 28. He said, in the new world, maybe we should say new earthly glory. In the new world, when God restores All things, they will, but not yet. They have their timeline wrong. Glory's coming, but suffering comes first. Only those who bear the cross shall receive the crown. And so how does Jesus reply to this outlandish request for worldly greatness? Look at verse 22 of chapter 20. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, "We are able." Jesus says, "You don't know what you're asking for." He, he asks if they think they're able to drink the cup. He's going to drink. Why do you think he uses that imagery of cup? A cup. Well, the cup in Scripture is most often referring to the cup of God's wrath. Let me just read a few passages to you. Psalm seventy-five says, "It's God who executes judgment." putting down one and lifting up another, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25 speaks of the cup of the wine of wrath. He says... If they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I'm summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Prophet Isaiah chapter 51 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who've drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So these disciples are filled with worldly ambition. They don't realize where Jesus is headed. So they don't know what they're asking. James chapter 4 puts it this way You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Look at verse 23. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus says, you will, in fact, drink my cup. They will experience persecution, suffering. He's already said that in Matthew 10. 10. And James, he's talking here to James and John. James was martyred by King Herod in A.D. 44. The book of Acts records it. John would be exiled to Patmos. They will drink the cup, but to grant you to sit at my right and my left, it's for those prepared by my Father. What they don't know is that, in fact, there would be one on his right side. And there would be one on his left side when the king entered glory. It's just not what they expected. Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the on the left they don't know what they're asking for good verse 24 and when the 10 heard it they were indignant at the two brothers now they're not being virtuous here they're being jealous they're just mad they didn't get to call dibs first they too want worldly greatness by the way if christianity were just totally made up you don't include this kind of shortcomings among your leaders that's worldly greatness second then let's consider kingdom greatness look at chapter 20 verse 25 but jesus called them to him and said you know that the rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them so jesus asked his disciples and he asked us to consider the pagan leaders The Gentiles, they lord it over their people. They flaunt their authority. They are domineering. They bear down on those below them. They boss people around. They're self-centered, in other words. They really only care about people for their own benefit. They don't care about others. Other people are only there to get me what I want or get me where I want to be. That's the way they operate. Look at verse 26. What about us? It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. He says, you know how the pagans roll. They lord it over others. Not so you among you. It's going to be different. You're not pagan. The values of the kingdom and the values of the world are starkly opposed. The value scales are in opposition. Pagan kingdoms, unbelieving kingdoms, unbelieving leaders, they're characterized by a self-serving rule, but God's people are servant leaders, as Jesus taught elsewhere in the economy of the kingdom of Christ. It's better to give than to receive. So we're different. We're not like them. Not so you. We're countercultural. We're distinct. We're salty. We're weird. And notice what Jesus says here. He mentions their great ones. And this is in contrast to what he's been saying so far all summer with this teaching on the values of the kingdom. His emphasis and his focus has not been on the great ones, but on who? The little ones. Look at chapter 18, verse 6. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. I think there he's talking specifically about children, but then he expands it to mean anyone down and out. Anyone low on the totem pole. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Look at verse 14. It's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus isn't about the great ones, but the little ones. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to be great, how do you get there? Well, you become a servant. The word here is actually the same word for deacon. Diakonos, literally, it just means table waiter. Your posture toward others is not how can I use them for my benefit, but how can I put my benefit aside that I might be a benefit to them? How can I lay my agenda and my preference and my rights aside to come alongside and edify and encourage and help others? Really, we're just talking about biblical love, aren't we? The giving of self for the benefit of others. In the New Testament, love and serve are really, really similar, but not just a servant. Jesus says, you want to be first, you need to become a slave. Obviously, stronger than a servant. Servants willingly serve others. Slaves are owned by others. Again, in other words, it's not about us. We don't focus on our rights and our privileges. We put them aside. We give them up. And again, this only makes sense in the kingdom of Christ. doesn't make sense in the world. Because we live in a me-first world. And Jesus' kingdom is another first kingdom. Flip over with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians is all about the fact that we're justified by faith alone. We're free now. We're free from the law. And in chapter 5, he's beginning to teach on more practical matters and how we're to live in light of justification by faith alone. And notice the language he uses in chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The idea here is the sinful self. You're free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the sinful self. Rather, but through love ESV says serve one another, but again, there's actually two different words. And this word is stronger than that. It's the word for slavery. Rather, become slaves of one another. Now, what sense does that make except for in the kingdom of Christ? You're free. Only don't use your freedom on yourself. Rather, become a slave to others within the Christian congregation verse 14 for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself what do we do with our freedom we give it away for the sake of one another peter says the same first peter chapter 2 verse 16 live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as slaves of god honor everyone love the brotherhood fear god honor the emperor jesus says kingdom ambition Must be ambition to serve others. Normally, ambition is about self-advancement, but in the kingdom of Christ, we're about self-denial. Narcissus, staring at his reflection, is drowned in the baptismal waters. Selfish ambition is crucified at Golgotha. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The first will be last, and the last first. The church of Jesus Christ is to be a community of service, not status, not pomp and power, but sacrifice and service. Notice what the mom asked for. Can my sons sit at your right and left? They want to sit in order to be served, but that's just not the way of Jesus. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. Even as, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Jesus is our example. What are the values of the kingdom? Look to the king. You know what he could have come in? He came in as the Son of God. He could have come in demanding service. He could have come in rightly lording it over his people. But he doesn't, and here we are to follow him. Christians are to be like Christ. 1 John 2.6, for to this you've been called because Christ also, sorry, 1 John 2.6 says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. 1 Peter says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Turn with me over to the book of 1 Corinthians. We see this pattern 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this example of Jesus working itself out in all sorts of practical ways, from everything from just generic service to what it means on how we eat at a table, to how we use our money, to what it is in marriage, to forgiveness, generosity. We are to be imitators of Jesus. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, and 9, he's talked about really him as an apostle, how he had certain rights, but he gave them up. He had rights, he gave them up. He had rights, he gave them up. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. Really good definition of love right here. Chapter 10, 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. There it is. Not selfishness, but selflessness. Skip down to the end of chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to this third category, the church of God, the third race, verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage But that of many that they may be saved. Notice that pattern we see in the Apostle Paul here. He's not after himself. He's not after his own rights. He's not after his own advantage. But he's after the advantage of others. In this case that they may be saved. And there's a really bad chapter break. Because then he summarizes it in chapter 11 verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We're to be like Christ. And specifically in this way. Service. Service self-giving love even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life and so how can we grow in becoming servants here's the reality because of the fall every one of us is consumed with ourself the dna of sin is self-centeredness and so all of us have to fight self-centeredness until the day we die or the lord brings resurrection so how can we grow and becoming servants. How can we grow in becoming slaves, even to use Jesus' language? Well, we do what Jesus says. We look to him, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. So we look to Him. Look to Jesus. And His love and His model and His teaching is an example. It shapes us and it forms us. Y'all remember John 13? John 13, in the in the Gospel of John. Jesus, kind of like where we're at in Matthew, he's heading to Jerusalem. And John 13 is this time where he has kind of the last, it's the last supper, it's the last time uh, in the upper room, it's the last time with his disciples. And those of you who've been able to be with loved ones in their dying days, last words are weighty words, aren't they? Here's Jesus, in many ways, last teaching time he has with his disciples. I wonder what you think he would say. What would he say? This is kind of the last time to be with his small crew until he goes to be crucified. You remember what he does. He actually doesn't say much. They're, they're in, a, in a room and they're eating and Jewish custom would be that you would lean on your left hand and you would have your feet away from the table because feet are nasty, especially in that day. And you would eat with your right hand. And normally there would be a domestic slave in most homes who would come and wash feet, either at the beginning or later, for whatever reason at this time there wasn't there. So what does Jesus do? lays aside his outer garment, puts on the towel, gets the water basin, and goes to his nasty disciples' feet. you just imagine how nasty Peter's feet were? I would love to be there. I think we'll be able to see this picture in glory. Peter's probably just talking. They're probably one up in one another, sons of thunder, you know, going off on something. All of a sudden, they feel activity at their feet. And it's the Lord of glory performing the duties of a domestic servant. Disciples, what is it that I want to leave in your minds? The activities of a slave. Can you imagine how impactful that was? And what does he say right after that in John 13? He said, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, I don't think we need to be doing literal foot washing in our day and age. We have socks and shoes. But what's the picture? It's the picture of laying aside our rights and privileges and giving of self for the good of others. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Christians are called to be like their Lord and their teacher. Pick it up at verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others have this mind among you which was also in Christ Jesus who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You notice the pattern? Jesus had rights. He was in the very form of God. What did he do? Emptied himself. He gave up his rights, became in human form, the form of a slave. I think he's probably thinking of John 13 here. So that we might be saved. We are not to do anything out of selfish ambition, me first, not for our own glory, not for our own greatness. No, we're to put that aside and we're to put the interests of others ahead of us, put our rights aside that others may benefit, just as Jesus did. We're to have the mind of Christ. Jesus is the supreme example of putting oneself at the disposal of others. One commentator said, So seriously does Jesus take the way we work that he uses his death to motivate it. So I wonder this morning are there any areas in your life where you're characterized by selfish ambition? Has the Lord brought anything to your mind of an area where you're wanting to be first? You're wanting to be great, recognized. Areas you need to be re-educated by Jesus. We all have them. Ways that we can stop trying to be first, but rather put others first. Could you say that your life is characterized by service to the people of God? Want to be great? Become a servant. Want to be first? Become a slave to others. Young people, how often is your motive to be first? Ask, why do I do what I do? Is it to be recognized? Get the most likes? Be the most popular? Sound most important? Kids, kids with siblings in particular, Do you seek to put the interest of your siblings above your own interests? Or are you always wanting me, mine? Or do you think, you know what, I ought to be like Jesus and put their interest before mine. It's the way of Jesus. Jesus would have you follow him. Or are you like these Zebedees? I want to be at the top. The Son of Man came. And he came to give and notice what it says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a redemption by payment of a price. It's that price paid to secure a slave's freedom. And notice this is why Jesus came. For the son of man came. By the way, we always need to stop and ask where did he come from? It just goes to show you Jesus was no creation or creature. He came from heaven. He the son always existed. And the father and the spirit With the Father and the Spirit, and the Father sent the Son to be a ransom for sinners like us. We are sinners. Our fundamental need is that we've said to God, no thanks, I'm going to rule. And because of that, we need redemption. We need ransom. We owe a debt we cannot pay. And praise God, as we just sang, Jesus paid the price on our behalf. This is the good news. You can be ransomed. If you trust Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've got questions about coming to faith in Christ, we'd love to talk. If you've already done that, the first step is obedience and believer's baptism. Romans three twenty four: We're justified, declared in the right by His grace through the redemption. That is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We believe. We don't earn, we believe. Ephesians 1-7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is why he came. He died as a ransom for many, in the place of many, as a substitute for many. The death of Christ was an atonement for sin. He absorbed the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. That's what that word in Romans means, propitiation, a sacrifice that averts wrath. You and I deserve God's wrath, and that's why Christ died so that we wouldn't have to experience it. He experienced it for us. And now we're called to imitate him. But we can't be like him, so we will fail. And when we fail, we remind ourselves that he died as a ransom when we press on. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, happy is that man who is truly humble, strives to do good in his day, walks in the steps of Jesus, and rests all his hopes on the ransom paid for him by Christ's blood. Look at verse 29 of Matthew 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, Touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. There we have Jesus' last miracle performed during his earthly ministry. Jericho's the last stop before Jerusalem, and these two blind men hear that Jesus is coming and they recognize him as the Messiah. Something the Jewish leaders failed to do, right? They, they can't see, but they do see. In fact, they see better than. Israel's leaders, see, and they call him son of David. Somehow they knew the Bible. They knew the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that God would give David a son who would rule forever. And so they say, son of David, king, Messiah. They knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of those promises. Jesus is the son of David as this very gospel starts with. And the first time they call out, they're rebuked by the crowds. They're hushed. You see, this group, they may be following Jesus, but they ain't following Jesus. You remember what Jesus said about the down and out, about the little ones in chapter 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Just like the disciples rebuked the parents of the children here, they rebuked these two blind men. They still don't get it. But the blind men, they don't care. They don't listen to the crowd. They don't fall into peer pressure. They know this is the king of Israel, so they crowd all the louder, son of David, have mercy on us. They're like Jacob wrestling, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. They're like that persistent widow, wouldn't leave the judge alone, or that unwavering friend begging to borrow bread at midnight. And so Jesus stops and says, what do you want? And they want their sights. They want their side and they believe Jesus can do it. They have faith in Jesus. They knew who he was. They probably knew the promises of the kingdom, the promises of Isaiah 35 that when the kingdom comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And so, Jesus, in pity, in compassion, he touches their eyes and they're healed. Jesus is moved with compassion. That word, two, two parts, calm, passion, with suffering, it's actually a visceral word, it's like from the gut. Jesus felt deeply for them. And he grants their sights. He's a compassionate Savior. Dear suffering saint, know that Jesus suffers with you. He's with you. He's for you. He has not and will not abandon you. He is full of mercy and compassion. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So, church, let's be about true greatness, kingdom greatness, which consists not in lording over others, but coming under others and self-giving love. Let me read the passage one more time, starting in verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the pagans lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even. As the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.